This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA here on this Tuesday. We are officially kicking off the month of September, harvest getting underway for growers here across the country. Taking a look at the markets here to start this week, we're seeing a little bit of weakness develop in the grains at the start of the week. Soybeans down substantially 20 cents here in the front month and the deferreds. We've got a little bit of positive movement in the corn market up fractionally and wheat seeing a little bit of strength. We're going to talk in segment four with Chris Swift of Swift Trading Company about how this could impact the cattle market. We are seeing some gains in prices there in both feeders and fat cattle. Before we do that, however, we're going to check in with Krista Harden, President and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council here in segment three talking about the space of global trade right now for Americans' protein exports. And in segment two, John Baranek of DTN Weather will be with us. After a quiet tropical season, things are starting to heat up. Tropical storm Earl is down there in the Caribbean, and Hurricane Danielle moving around in the Atlantic. We'll see if that's going to have any impact here in the United States. But before we get to all of that, it's time to get caught up on policy with our good friend Jackie Fatka. She is the policy editor over at Farm Progress Publications. Jackie, you were at the Farm Progress show all week week last week I could tell it was an election year we had a slew of politicians on hand and you had the chance to interview Secretary Vilsack didn't you yeah it was a great week a lot of focus on the farm bill discussions from legislators and uh, Secretary Vilsack being on the grounds on Tuesday last week we spoke Tuesday morning and it was uh, great to have him there he had some exciting news and, and also just get a an overview of a lot of the things that the Biden administration has been working for when it comes to rural America and one of those things, Jackie, certainly the move towards climate smart agriculture. We've heard that phrase a lot from this administration. And Biden was, or excuse me, uh, Vilsack was at Farm Progress cheerleading some of the investments they've made. What did he talk about as he addressed the crowd? Yeah, so one of the interesting things, and uh, these are the the conversations that you hear kind of on the uh, sidelines of, of of these events, right? So Secretary Vilsack is, is using some funds from the CCC, which is the money that is usually used to pay for the farm bill programs. But during the Trump administration, they also used the CCC funds to help provide those trade mitigation payments to producers and also CFAP payments after the coronavirus uh, bill that was that was allowed those that money to go towards farmers. And so this was a this is a new way that this, this administration is is trying to prioritize how it wants to help support the ag industry. And so there is $1 billion in CCC funds that they had announced quite a while ago and, and solicited applications on who could try to develop climate smart ag commodities. So not just paying farmers for the conservation actions, but really trying to figure out a way to monetize and really add additional value. Another income stream is, is usually how Vilsack talks about it to make sure that there are more and better markets for farmers. And so this was kind of a preview. This wasn't an official announcement, but when he was there, he said, you know, we want to we wanted to to give you guys a, a bit of a feel for what they are going to be announcing here. And I think the official announcement is going to be coming out next week. And, and one of those projects was a, a joint project with the Iowa Soybean Association and several other and, and PepsiCo and Cargill working together to pay farmers uh, $45 per acre to to do some of those actions on their farm. Um, and, you know, this pro this program, it was a billion dollar pot of money. And with the applications that came in, it was over a thousand fifty projects for $18 billion in total funds. So a lot of excitement for how the ag industry can partner together on advancing some of these climate smart objectives of the administration and some money to kind of pilot project things, see how things work. And so, he was excited to announce that, and uh, we'll be getting some more details next week on on more of those projects. and And they're going to be working. You know, a lot of times when you apply for a grant, you might ask for so much money, but then there's only a you know so much money available. So I would imagine they're working right now on finalizing how much. Uh, money will be given to each of these applicants who will end up having that one billion pot of money to try to pilot project and see how we can build on really 
providing another income stream to farmers. Jackie, there has been a lot of focus on this. This project, a billion dollars is a pile of money, but as you mentioned, it comes from that coronavirus uh, relief funds. Is there any chance that there will be a similar pot of money in the future next year or, or the year after? So, so technically, this is just out of the, the Commodity Credit Corporation, which is a CCC funds, which is just a, they, what they did in the coronavirus is they increased the limit. So it used to be, I, I want to say it was like $30 billion that they limited that, which, which was how you got paid your CRP payments, how you got paid your ARC payments and PLC payments, all that money, you couldn't spend more than that top line amount. Well, some years, you know, you do have more money that would go out and other years you wouldn't have as much. And so the, the Trump administration used their authority at USDA to write the CFP payments, write the M MFP payments without actually having authority from Congress. So that is kind of the same authority that Vilsack is using here with this billion dollars in, in CCC funds is, is basically saying, well, this is a whole pot of money that USDA has authority to use. And so we're going to use it how we want. So there's some concern from Congress that this is basically just giving USDA a, a blank check to do whatever they want. And it does not have to go through the normal farm bill process. But that's what the Trump administration did when they paid for those CFAP and M MFP payments. And so, you know, it was interesting because, as I mentioned on the sidelines, he kind of jokingly thanked a, a former member of the Trump administration of, hey, thanks, thanks for opening this up for us, because now we can do it how we want to. And uh, we'll see if Congress doesn't like how this goes and how they, they have had times in the past where they've actually made more restrictions on USDA to limit how they use those two CCC funds. And so we'll see if that happens in the next Congress based on, on this, this kind of trial run with the Biden administration's focus of using those CCC funds. Good to know. As long as CCC is funded, then programs like this would have funding. Jackie, thinking back to the Farm Progress Show, a lot of representatives, a lot of Congress folks on hand, farm bill discussions in the air. Anything come to light to you this past week? You know, there were a, a handful of House Republican members, so House Republican uh, ranking member Glenn Thompson, G.T. Thompson from Pennsylvania, who's the top Republican member. He was actually there all three days. A lot of discussion. He had a, a farm bill hearing in the in, in the Wallace's Farmer Hospitality Tent, which I was able to to moderate. He also had another one with um he had another one at the Golden Harvest Tent, uh, which was another opportunity to kind of highlight some of those key priorities. I think, you know, House Republicans are really hoping that they're going to be able to change the House, flip the House. And so that would make him the chairman of the House. Uh, definitely hearing from him that he is looking to have more oversight on how money is spent. Um, I think we could definitely see that. And also just really ramping up ramping up the hearings and hearing from farmers you know he he said more than once that they're really behind the eight ball here on on getting out into the field they've not had actually any bipartisan hearings on the on the countryside there's been a handful of house house hearings but none that have actually had both republicans and democrats and so um you know we'll see we'll see what that means and where that goes from here Indeed we will. It's time to start working there, Congress, on getting that prepared. Jackie Fatka, Policy Editor at Farm Progress. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jackie. Great to talk with you. Thanks, Mike. And folks, stick around. John Baranek of DTN Weather will be joining us when AOA returns for an update on what to expect weather-wise this week. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seed has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that could only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields. 
to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. The average American eats 250 eggs per year, which translates to a total annual consumption of 76.5 billion eggs in the U.S. About 60% of eggs produced here in the U.S. are used by consumers, and about 9% are used by the food service industry. A chef's hat is said to have a pleat for each of the many ways you can cook eggs. The color can range from white to deep brown. Hens with white feathers and earlobes lay white-shelled eggs, while hens with red feathers and earlobes lay brown-shelled eggs. Because breeds that lay brown eggs are typically slightly larger birds, they require more food, making brown eggs usually more expensive than white. You can tell whether an egg is fresh or stale by dropping it in water. A fresh egg will sink, but a stale one will float. Eggs also contain all the essential protein, minerals, and vitamins, and egg yolks are one of the few foods that naturally contain vitamin D. And eggs are also good for your eyes because they contain lutein, which helps prevent age-related cataracts and muscle degeneration. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA here on this Tuesday. I just pulled up a weather map and looked out to the western third of the United States, and it is all excessive heat warnings, red flag warnings, and heat advisories. Ooh, joining us now for a weather update for this week is John Baranek of DTN Weather. And, John, it sounds like it's going to be a hot one out west today. Yeah, it definitely will be, and actually for the next few days as well. We've got uh, you know just a ridge of high pressure that's been building actually since last week. Uh, it's been bringing some record high temperatures out to some of those western states all last week as well. And uh, this week is just a continuation of that. And it's going to take something kind of big to kind of move through to kind of jostle that out of that pattern. John, is there anything big in the forecast that could move it? And if it does start to move, will this dome of heat center over the Corn Belt? Well, we will get a little break here, at least in the Pacific Northwest, um, from the extreme heat. Uh, we do have a, a, a trough moving through western Canada here in the middle of this week, so kind of tomorrow through Thursday. Uh, and then that system is actually going to press through most of the rest of the country here, uh, going through the later parts of this week and into next week as well. So that's, um, that's going to be a, a, a big uh, weather maker ahead of that trough though out of that system uh it's getting hot in the plains we've got you know we don't have all the heat advisories and heat warnings out there uh that they do out in the west but you know temperatures today and over the next couple of days are going to approach 100 degrees for portions of the central plains um even sioux falls south dakota we have a high of 98 on thursday ahead of the cold front so i mean there's some hot temperatures out there in, in the plains and they'll they'll move across uh, the country here ahead of that front but that front moving through is, is a pretty significant one uh, behind it, temperatures are going to be in the 60s and 70s. So we'll go from the 80s and 90s down to the 60s and 70s. That's a, that's a pretty good dip here and uh, kind of a harbinger of kind of things to come. You know, we're getting into the fall season, so some of these cold fronts are going to be a little bit stronger when they move through. All right, John. Well, you just kind of asked and answered my next question was, I've been talking to a lot of growers, particularly in the northern belt, and a lot of crops go in late. They're watching for that frost date. And I was thinking, well, 98 degrees in Sioux Falls should be pretty warm through harvest. But what do you anticipate? When is that frost going to become a risk for here in the northern corn belt? 
Yeah, that's going to be tough to do. You know, even these, these colder uh, fronts that come through down through Canada um, this month are, uh, have, are going to have a hard time actually bringing that down to, uh, to a frost level. So I think, you know, we, we may get some temperatures in the upper 30s at, at times there up in the Dakotas and the Montana. Um, but I don't think we see any significant frost uh, occurring, um, you know, going most of this month, really. I mean, the, this background ridge of high pressure is going to be sticking around all month. You know, every so often we'll get a little chink in the armor and, and get a, uh, uh, a, a trough to move through like we're going to see here this week. But overall, it's just not cold enough just yet. All right, John. Well, let's look out to this next weekend. That weather maker that could be coming through as this thing starts to move, who's going to see the impact of that first as it sweeps in from Western Canada? Yeah, so we'll get uh, we'll get some strings of showers going through the Dakotas and into Minnesota here on Thursday and into Friday. That front eventually starts to kind of sweep its way south through the central plains and then into the upper Midwest. But ahead of that, it's also going to be drawing in a bunch of moisture from the Gulf of Mexico. So we'll see kind of showers increasing across the Tennessee Valley, the lower Ohio Valley here, Friday and Saturday out ahead of that front. And then the whole frontal system kind of um, kind of merges together, all that, that tropical moisture ahead of it and the front itself for the weekend. And most of this is going to occur kind of uh, along and east of the Mississippi River. Uh, for any of the, the more consistent and heavier stuff. Any, anything out to the west of that is going to see more strings of showers from that front. So, um, you know, some, some of these areas out in the east that are, are looking for a little bit of late rain, it looks like they'll probably get some of it. Uh, but out in the west, it's just continuing to be dry. Uh, even if the rains do produce some decent rains for a couple of folks uh, out there, uh, it's very limited drought relief. Gotcha. John, speaking of the opposite, I guess, of drought relief down there in the, the, the Mississippi area, down there, Louisiana, Arkansas, the Delta region of Mississippi, they have been seeing lots of moisture. It's really starting to decimate the potential of their soybeans. Do you expect to dry down across that part of the country or is the Gulf activity starting to heat up? You know, at least they're not getting any tropical features out of it. We're not seeing any tropical storms moving into the Gulf um, anytime soon. I guess that's one silver lining to it, but the showers are going to still stick around. You know, this, this cold front that comes through here this weekend will finally, I think, dry things out for several days, um, kind of next week. But, um, you know, until then, it looks like we're going to get some, some periods of showers moving through. All right, John, I want to go out to the Atlantic, way out in the middle of the pond. Hurricane Danielle is drifting around out there. What does a storm system like that mean for America, if anything, or for Europe as they continue to contend with their catastrophic drought? Yeah, thankfully for us, it's going to mean absolutely bubkiss. Um, It it formed way too far out uh, east and north to have any impact for us here in the U.S. Um, it is a hurricane. It's the first hurricane of the uh, season. Actually, it's pretty late to have our first hurricane in September, but here we are. Um, but it's going to weaken as it, as it uh, moves kind of, um, it, it's, it's not moving very fast, but it's going to weaken here uh, later this week. And before it gets to Europe, it'll, it'll definitely be a, a weak little system. I'm not even sure if it's going to um, have much of an impact um, as, it, as it goes through the weekend, but you know, next week it could uh, kind of get involved in, into some of the systems moving across the North Atlantic. Um, but by then, it'll be just kind of a, a disturbance bringing extra rainfall. So uh, you're right, Europe has had an incredible drought. They're actually got a, a much larger system moving through there um, this week. So they're getting some decent showers there for their winter grains planting. Got a couple more behind it moving through as well. So uh, things are looking better for, for Europe. All right. Well, as they get close to harvest time, I'm sure some growers are going to be frustrated with the lack of moisture all season and then adequate rainfall at harvest. Never the way you like to see things go, but moisture is moisture. John, speaking of moisture, harvest season in Europe means we're getting close to planting season down in South America. We haven't talked Brazil or Argentinian weather for a little while. How are things looking as they set up for planting to begin in those soybeans? Yeah, soybeans, so they are um, banned by law to start uh, planting soybeans, depending on where you are in Brazil there, either uh, the 10th or 15th of September. So they're just kind of waiting around, and I think they're getting anxious because uh, La Nina always creates uh, additional problems for them. We definitely saw that over the last two years of La Nina, rather than our third La Nina. Um, thankfully, well, if, thankfully for southern Brazil farmers down there, the soil moisture is actually pretty good for those southern growing areas in Brazil. 
Uh, it's the central areas that rely more on that uh, wet season to get started. Typically not for a, another few weeks, but La Nina pushes that usually into sometime in October. And um, models are kind of mixed on whether or not they want to do that or not. But um, for early planting corn and, uh, and uh, the soybean season that should start up here next week, uh, southern Brazil is looking pretty good to start off. It's a little cooler, though, um, and there's still some risks for an early frost or for a late frost going in there for, for the next uh, several weeks. But uh, overall, not too bad to start out. All right, John, as you're thinking there about that La Nina setup, you've been tracking this, as you mentioned, third year of La Nina is about to begin. What does the data show? Is it continuing in strength? Is it moderating? How do things look out there in the Pacific? Yeah, we started talking about it last week when we were at the Farm Progress show. But uh, yeah, we're we're looking at conditions basically kind of staying pretty much where they're at. Uh, so it's not a strong La Nina. It's not a weak one. It's kind of a moderate one. It has been all summer long. Uh, we're going to continue to see that here into the, at least the early parts of winter time through probably January. And models are um, fortunately uh, all of them pretty much are, are on this trajectory where we get into neutral conditions by the end of the winter time, and have us kind of on a trajectory to get into an El Nino situation come next summer. Now that's kind of a long ways out into the future, and it's hard to trust models uh, that far into the future. But uh, it looks like uh, we're, at least we're getting out of this La Nina business. You know, we've been in. You know, this is uh, like I said, our, our third straight winter time of La Nina. Uh, it's very unusual, but we did have it in the, the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s. We had three winters like that, and it happened in the 70s and perhaps in the 50s as well. So we're kind of on this uh, cycle of every 20 to 25 years we get three straight La Ninas. But uh, luckily, we, we haven't seen anything with four um, in our times of, of monitoring it. So I don't think this, that's on our plate. All right. Well, that might be a load off, John, as we move towards a neutral uh, El Nino, La Nina setup in that uh, Pacific oscillator. What does that mean for weather here across the Corn Belt in the winter? Yeah. So in the winter, um, unfortunately, you know, with it starting off in a La Nina conditions, it takes, um, and, and we're just heading into neutral state, you know, it, it takes a time for the atmosphere to kind of respond to what's going on in the tropics. So fortunately, it looks like through the winter time we'll be in La Nina. That means cooler conditions across the north and a, a big clipper pattern. So Southern Plains staying dry and warm too. So that's not good for the week. No, not good news for our friends in the Southern Plains. We'll always appreciate John Baranek's insight from DTN. John, thanks for joining us today. And thanks for having me on, Mike. Always good to talk to you. You bet, folks. Stick around. Krista Harden from U.S. Deck when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. As growers consider cover crop options, the Seed Innovation Protection Alliance would like to remind you that many small grains are protected by some intellectual property and are not allowed to be used for seed production. Talk to your authorized seed dealer for information on your cover crop seed options. The Seed Innovation Protection Alliance thanks growers for buying new, professionally produced seed from authorized seed companies and dealers. To report a seed infringement, call 1-844-SEED-TIP. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we take a look at what's going on in the grain and oilseed space, wheat futures are mixed to higher. Corn is firm around unchanged, and the soy complex under heavy pressure here on Tuesday as we come back from the long three-day holiday weekend. Soy complex under pressure on improved yield ideas and the weakness in soy products led by the gap and go action on soy meal. Now, meal is lower due to the decision by Russia to extend the closure of the Nord Stream pipeline, threatening EU crushing plants as energy shortages are possible. Argentina favorable exchange rate for farmers is designed to encourage soy sales from them as well. That is another interesting piece in the puzzle that we are watching closely. All these different outside macro global factors are weighing into the ag commodities here moving forward. Now, near term, the Argentine policy change could see an increase in soy meal and soy oil available on the world market, as I mentioned. But longer term, the decision represents the growing problem that Argentina will have competing on the global market. 
Here in the U.S., we should see a steady flow of private production estimates this week, with the market increasingly focused on Monday's USDA WASDE crop report, which will contain the agency's first corn and soybean production estimates based on actual field data. That's something to watch closely as current market expectations are for the corn crop to continue trending smaller while the soybean crop remains near trend levels for at least one more report. This is being traded within a broader context of recessionary money flow mentality for the commodities. We see crude oil hovering around $87 a barrel with the stock market quiet. Again, in grains, corn firm around unchanged. Soy complex under pressure with November beans trying to hold above key resistance at $14. Wheat futures are higher for the most part as well. Cattle futures up moderately at hogs under slight pressure. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our technical skills. Our math. Our engineering skills. You're going to need our help with your water. Your air. Your food. You're going to need our organizational skills. Our problem-solving skills. You're going to need our determination. Our honesty. Our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Appreciate you taking the time to make AOA a part of your day here on this Tuesday. For the past two years in agriculture, we have been talking about exports. We rely on it for so many of our grains and for the protein that we produce so well in this country. And there have been a lot of upheavals in the world of global trade. It has uh, made things become a little bit more interesting, perhaps, than they have been for the past several years. And certainly a lot of work for those professionals who work to maintain those gates and keep those doors open to American agricultural products so they can find a home around the world. Joining us today is the president and CEO of one of those organizations that does just that, the United States Dairy Export Council. Joining us is Krista Harden. You may remember that name. She was the former deputy secretary at USDA under Tom Vilsack in his first go-round as secretary of agriculture. She's now working to keep dairy products moving around the world. Krista joins us. Thanks for talking to us today. Hey, good morning. Good to hear your voice. Well, let's talk, Krista, a little bit about U.S. Deck. It's the first time we've had anybody from your organization here on the show since I've been hosting. So give us the, the up-to-speed information. What does U.S. Deck do? Well, I'll tell you, U.S. Dairy Export Council um, is 27 years old. It was formed by some very forward-thinking farmers and some processors um, way back um, who realized that we are in a market that our farmers are very productive, they're very efficient, and that we have more supply than our kind of stagnant population in the U.S. is, you know, able to use and consume. And we have high-value, very good products that the rest of the world um, wants and needs. So um, U.S. DEC is actually um, the organization that helps open those doors we work with our government, we work with other governments, we work with importers in other countries and customers who are looking for a really good source of, of dairy and dairy products. So we're kind of a matchmaker sometimes, um, but um, you know, the companies, the processors, the cooperatives in this country are the ones who are actually doing the sales, but we're laying the groundwork and really helping to create an atmosphere um, for export and trade. Well, and it's that atmosphere in 2022 that I'm excited to talk to you about because it is definitely a different atmosphere this year than it has been in recent years past. Let's talk first about the world, Krista. As COVID starts mm -hmm. to fade, what products that U.S. dairy is producing are really looking hot on the international stage right now? 
Well, we're excited, and I'll be honest with you, during COVID, it, it, we actually um, were able to grow our markets as well. There's high demand for high-quality high um, products that we produce in the U.S. Um, our cheese, of course, is one we're very proud of, um, and there's interest there. There's interest in whey and other dairy ingredients that go into to products for a healthy, nutritious diet. And I think during COVID, folks really started thinking about, you know, what they're eating where it comes from, how it's produced. There's a big focus globally on, um, you know, their health and wellness, you know, issues, maybe more so than in the recent past. And dairy um, was, you know, able to be incorporated into more and more diets. We're in smoothies and, you know, health bars, you know, in addition to the normal uses that a lot of us think about. So we, um, we saw that opportunity. Our folks were able to take advantage of that during COVID, and we just have to continue in a growth uh, mode um, in spite of some headwinds, frankly, um, uh, as we come out of, of COVID. And, and I think everybody knows that recovery is mixed, right, around the world. There are inflation issues. There are different kinds of problems. But still, um, you know, customers, consumers are looking for U.S. dairy um, as, a, as a part of their healthy diet. That is good news. It's great to have a brand out there that global consumers know they can turn to and trust. And you mentioned, Krista, that recovery has been mixed around the world. From your perspective, which countries are are really grabbing on the quickest to U.S. dairy products? Have we added some new purchasers to the mix recently? We have. And uh, first I'll say, you know, I have to give a shout out to Mexico. It, it is clearly our biggest market and still some of our closest friends and allies are in the Mexican communities. They love our products. So in spite of their kind of slower recovery, they rebound in and are certainly back in the marketplace. Southeast Asia, obviously, is very important to us. A little slower recovery. Um, the Middle East and Northern Africa was a surprise during COVID, um, how that much they increased. Um, we're also looking at places in South America and Central America as well, where there have been more and more demand and more interest um, in U.S. dairy um, products and ingredients. You mentioned Mexico, huge partner of U.S. dairy. We've also got the other partner just to the north of us, Krista, in Canada. Uh, we have seen several disputes with the Canadians with regard to dairy policy. We thought we were going to get them addressed in USMCA, but the struggles continue. Bring us up to speed. What's happening between us and our friends to the north? Well, you're exactly right, Mike. Um, USMCA was supposed to be, um, you know, really fix some of the problems that we've had with Canada. That has not done that. We continue to struggle. We continue to work with our government and friends in Canada to ensure that the intent of the agreement and the commitments made by Canada, Canada are fulfilled. Um, we have one more, you know, case. We just keep, you know, fighting through the process. We keep winning, but it seems to be more and more hurdles. So we're not giving up. We're not going to rest until we get these um, issues resolved. But um, it hit the USMCA was not quite um, the answer we had hoped it would be, but we're going to keep working until it is. All right. So those are going to continue and, and we're relying on courts. I imagine we're at that phase of the game now with Canada. Is that right? That's right. Yes. All right. Well, I want to take our focus to another issue that has certainly been a thorn in the side of a lot of folks negotiating agreements to get goods back and forth amongst countries. And that's non-tariff barriers. We see those a lot in the grains. Krista, are they a prominent feature in global trade for dairy as well? Yes, there really are. Um, we we definitely would love to see more trade agreements, more market access. Um, unfortunately, our competitors, our biggest competitors, enjoy much more favorable conditions in many, many key areas and key countries. So we keep pushing this administration and Congress and others um, to think about ways that we can level that playing field. We know we have good products. We know that consumers and customers want U.S. dairy and dairy products, but Often we're at a disadvantage. So more trade agreements, more market access would certainly be very helpful to our industry as well. Krista, if you could, let's take a step back. You mentioned some of our competitors have better market access. For listeners who aren't in, war in the global trade world, what does that mean? How can we have a competitor with better access to a market than U.S. goods? Well, it really is a government-to-government decision, um, and there are trade agreements, and trade agreements are two-way, just like any agreement, right? Everybody gives some take, um, but it has to be beneficial to, to both partners. 
Um, and we just have not been aggressive in the last five, you know, maybe six years and really working through some of those issues and tariff barriers and other hurdles that are put um, in place to keep products from coming in. And frankly, our competitors have been more aggressive than we have in working with other governments to make sure that, that dairy is um, on the list. And it's an important, critical part of their trade agreements. And they're actually, you know, putting agreements in place where we have not um, in, in quite a long time. So um, it's, it's about being aggressive. It's about being targeted and focused on key markets and, and dairy being on that list of importance um, to making sure that we um, have better access and, um, or at least equal um, in many cases to our competitors. That all being said, the Indo-Pacific economic framework being discussed by the Biden administration. Krista, is dairy on the topic of, of conversation in that uh, agreement? Well, we, send, we keep certainly um, hoping that it is, and we keep pushing to make sure it will be. Um, it is not, you know, right now does not include, you know, tariffs or tariff reductions. There are other methods that might be included in such an agreement that would be helpful. Indonesia is a, an important market for us. It could be even more important with the right conditions. So we continue to work with the administration asking for specific areas um, for improvement for us. So it is definitely one that we're paying close attention to. Has the administration been responsive, Krista, when the dairy industry calls out on the export side? Have they been getting back and, and prompt with their responses? They sure have been. We have a good relationship with the Biden administration. Obviously, Secretary Vilsack um, is back again at USDA. And you mentioned in my introduction that I have worked directly for him as Deputy Secretary. I will remind folks that he, I followed him here at USDEC. I was his chief operating officer the last um, year or so that he was the president and CEO of USDEC. Um, so he understands dairy very, very well and the importance of exports. We also have a great relationship with USTR, which is very important as well with the trade representative. Um, we're excited that Doug McCaleb um, hopefully will be confirmed very soon as the, as the ag um, attache there so we can work very closely with him. He knows our issues as well. Um, we just want to continue you know, to work very closely with leaders, also in, in Congress as well. It's very important that we have support um, in both branches. But yes, we, we have a good relationship with the Biden administration. That's good to hear. Krista, before we let you go, we continue to see the conflict over in the Ukraine between Russia and the Ukraine. Has that impacted dairy trade over to Europe much at all? Well, it, it has not directly. Um, we did not export into Ukraine um, or, or, or Russia, um, but we definitely did conflicts and put the pressures on food supply and food insecurity. It's certainly an issue. Energy prices obviously, you know, impact dairy farmers just like they do every farmer and rancher in the U.S. So there's a lot of issues without the, throughout the supply chains that are impacted directly um, from this conflict. And, you know, and as it goes on longer and longer, the greater the impacts. That's right. These things snowball. Krista Harden, before we let you go, if we've got listeners who want to keep up to date with the world of global dairy trade and they want to stay in tune with what's happening in that world, how can they keep in touch with the U.S. Dairy Export Council? Well, certainly just go to our website, you know, usdairy.com, usdairyexportcouncil.com, usdec.com. Follow us. Reach out. We would love to, to stay in touch with your listeners, with you, Mike, as well. We appreciate this opportunity to, to talk about dairy and dairy exports. We're almost about 20% of product produced in the U.S. is, is going into exports now. It certainly matters to dairy farmers' bottom line, and that resonates through the ag supply chain. Krista Harden, President and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Mike, very much. And folks, stick around. When we return, we'll talk the other protein that comes from cattle, beef, with Chris Swift of Swift Trading Company. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans and if left untreated can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. 
The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen. It's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, Scott Sachina, Vice President of Sales for Cenex, the energy brand of CHS, shares the importance of planning for energy needs ahead of harvest. Scott, what factors do you expect to impact demand heading into this fall? There's a lot going on in the industry and why we have tight supplies. You've obviously probably heard about tight supplies because of exports, more going to Europe with Ukraine and the industry moving away from using Russian products. But the other overarching kind of issue or challenge is just we're tight refining capacity. So we're coming off of two years uh, during COVID where you really had a lot of refiners. You had some that shut down and are no longer in operation. But then we also have a lot that moved to making renewable diesel, which is a great product that we support. But that does cut down on the total yield that a refinery can make. So just has less in the Midwest and a lot of the area. And so filling your tank ahead of time is definitely going to uh, save a lot of concerns. Filling that tank, that on-farm storage, what do farmers need to think about preparation for that storage ahead of harvest? Whether it's spring or in harvest, the two things you can really do to help keep from having any problems one is changing your filters. You know, obviously a new filter, make sure you get rid of any debris or anything that before it gets into your equipment. But then majority of the problems on the fuel side end up being tied back to water. And there's a lot of ways that water can get into the system, including condensation on your on-farm storage. So checking that, making sure that you remove any water that might be in your tank and or using a product like our Field Master that helps, you know, not only with a long line of detergents, but then also a complete water management package that just helps you manage that better and make sure that that water does not get into your equipment. Well, we've been talking to Scott Sachina, Vice President of Sales for Cenex. Scott, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And folks, thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership by visiting cooperativeownership.com. The archaeological records suggest that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 BC. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving Austria from Turkish invaders, the baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Egg Network. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Taking a look at the commodity markets, we're still seeing corn with relative stability. We're up a penny, a penny, plus some fractions here in a, some, most of the contracts. Soybeans still seeing substantial weakness on the day. We're off 25 cents here in the nearby end, most of the deferreds. And uh, wheat bouncing around quite a little bit. As we return from that three-day weekend, however, we are seeing some green on the screen in the cattle complex. Both live and feeder cattle are higher. Chris Swift of the Swift Trading Company out of Nashville, Tennessee, keeps track of what's developing in these markets. And Chris, are you surprised to see some strength in the feeders today? Uh, good morning, Mike. Um, not really. We saw that last week's employment report was really friendly. And anytime people get more money in their pocket, disposable income, then we have a tendency to think, well, at least they might have more discretionary spending habits towards beef. And we know that the cattle market has been beaten this uh, year so much with uh, heavy cow liquidation, heifer placement on there. So we know that we are right now killing our front end inventory and that's going to make for some fairly short inventory in the back chris what are we seeing with beef demand how are choice and select boxes holding up in this market you know, really not very well. We saw them slip back under 260 last week, and that was kind of a worrisome level for me. Um, that was prior to the uh, unemployment report coming out, the employment report coming out. So I'm not real sure how they'll do this week, but looks like maybe Labor Day had some good movement. There was a, clearly a lot of traffic out and about, so the southeast did not start to get the rains, heavy rains, until today. So I think most of their holiday was still spent in some pretty sunny conditions, and that should have helped our beef move. Movement. Well, I can tell you yesterday here in central Iowa, I smelled a lot of grills cooking. It was uh, reasonably chilly and perfect weather. I definitely know we cooked up some beef here across the countryside. Chris, thinking about uh, what is happening there in the live cattle market, you mentioned that cow kill we've been seeing running at an exponential pace. Is that continuing? It's starting to slow down just a little bit. <clears throat> there were some weather conditions that changed in North Texas over the last week. It, it probably didn't um, slow the kill any down, but it didn't speed it up any either. They've had some rains in some areas, but we saw the six to 10 day weather forecast showing not quite as much rain and still some very high temperatures. And with this particular time frame now coming into the fall season, the likelihood of any greater hay production or any further um, aspects that would lead you to believe that expansion could start taking place as early as this next spring still isn't very good right now. That certainly makes sense. Chris, these input costs for cattle feeders are astronomical. It was broadly expected by some of the folks I spoke with that we were thinking we'd have a decent corn crop this year, would see that break in prices post-harvest. That was shaken this past week quite a bit with some of these crop tours. What are you advising cattle feeders to do with regard to their cost of grain here into the winter? You know, I, I take it from how much risk does one want to assume? We all understand that, that the markets go up and the markets go down, but it's how much risk do you, do you wish to assume and where don't you want to assume that risk, that price level at? So once you come up to those conclusions and you pick any price that you want above $7, is very difficult for me to do business, or $7.50, then you buy call options at those levels and say, well, regardless of what happens at this point, I now cry uncle and everything from this point forward I get to benefit from. If the market goes down, I'm able to buy the cash product cheaper, and I average out the premium that I pay compared to those months that I buy feed in. And even with the volatility we've seen lately, it still makes economic sense for producers to get in there and use the options. Oh, absolutely. As far as percentage of the value of the contract goes and what we kind of expect the price volatility to be and price expanse to be, if we do start coming in with lower yields and with pro farmer at a 13.7 billion bushel, that probably scared everybody to death. While we're still trading here at 667 for December corn, still out into the field but ready to be harvested, this is very unusual that we're trading higher in corn prices right on the cusp of harvest. Indeed it is. It is certainly a unique situation. Chris, I, I want to look out to the future a little bit. These input prices have a lot of folks spooked, like looking out there, locking in some profit potential when it's there. And boy, I just pulled up December 23. It's a long way away, but we've got $160 live cattle futures. Chris, is that worth laying any risk off that far in advance? 
You know, it's probably not because too many things can happen in that time frame. So I think that the best thing to do is just kind of take it within your production cycle. Uh, we know that they run anywhere from uh, 150 to 180 days in the production cycle. So going out to that particular level, and unless you're using options where it's not a um, it's not an unlimited risk factor to you all the time, then that is able to help you to manage that price risk that is still going to come regardless of what time of the year it is. All right. That makes sense. Chris, before we let you go, we saw in that last Catalan feed report here two, three weeks ago that placements were substantially higher than analysts were expecting. Based on the pace of the kill you've seen so far this year, do marketings appear like we're going to be able to soak up that large placement number? Uh, we probably won't do too bad of a job. If we look at total meat production for the year, we're only like nine-tenths of a percent shy of what we did year over year this time last year. So I think that we'll probably have ample plenty product to continue uh, for the rest of this year. And there's just not going to be any kind of shortages that I can imagine. We see the volume of August movement of stockers and feeder cattle being equally as heavy as what it was in July. So I think that you'll see more cattle placed in the month of August as you did in July, and the drought is a large part of it. They just don't have the water out there to be able to support that many animals, so putting them on feed is the next best thing. That certainly makes them, Chris. Of course, you weekly write the Shooting the Bull column, and you've got a website. Can you tell our listeners how they can keep in touch with you and your thoughts here on this volatile and quickly moving cattle market? Sure, absolutely. We write two commentaries a day, the shoot and the bull and the midday cattle comment, and anyone is welcome to reach out to us at any given time at swifttrading.co. Fantastic, folks. Swifttrading.co. Check that out. Chris Swift has been joining us today. Chris, always appreciate your insight, and we'll continue to talk to you as this market continues to move. Thank you, Mike. I certainly do appreciate the opportunity. And folks, stay with us tomorrow. We'll be back with more AOA. We're going to talk energy with author and professor Dr. Ellen Wald as she looks at what's moving in these crude oil markets. They're going to drive profitability in agriculture for the foreseeable future. Tune in on Wednesday to AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Hi, this is Jeff Schmidt. I'm your Chief Agri-District Manager for Eastern Nebraska. I will be at Husker Harvest Days on Lot 430 on September 13th through the 15th. We'll be talking with farmers and equipment dealers from all over the region about our customized product solutions that are designed to fit your operational needs. If you have any questions, give me a call, 308-440-8768, or check out our library of products at agra.chiefind.com. The landscape of media has changed, and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm Radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting.